Well, it is truly a wonderful, special day in every single way. Um, praise Jesus. And I uh, just thinking about what a great job Gerald does singing there with his family and all that, and we're really glad you're not with them anymore, Gerald. <laughs> Much better here with us. Just a little selfishness there I wanted to express. You're wonderful. So as we enter now into chapter 2 of 1 Timothy becomes necessary that we answer a theological question before we proceed. Does God change human hearts? Because we sing about that all the time. We just did. Change my heart, O God. Make it ever true. Change my heart, O God. I want to be like Jesus. And we pray for it all the time. God, change my brother's heart. He's dead in his sins. Lord, do something. Save him. So we have to ask the question then, do we actually believe what we say when we raise our voices to God in prayer and in song? Is God really the potter and and are we clay in the potter's hand? Is is God sovereign in salvation? That's a question. And, And many churches will never attempt to answer this question. There are some that wouldn't even dare read out of Romans 9. Because Romans 9 forces us to fathom the depths of our sinful depravity and, the, and it demands us to accept the greatness of God and what He's done for us. His grace. So this is really difficult doctrine today. It'd be much easier actually to just acquiesce and say, you know, let's, let's just not try. Let's not attempt to understand it. Let's not talk about it. That would be the easy way out. But Scripture commands us to increasingly seek a deeper understanding of God. In Psalm 145, King David writes, On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works, I will meditate. And the reason David meditates on God and on his word is because it's hard. God's word is hard. And David wants to understand more. That draws him intimately close to God through a greater intellectual understanding of God. Romans 12, 2 inspires us, be transformed by the renewing of your minds. So spiritual maturity, or what we call sanctification, it's a direct consequence of the diligent study and reflection upon God's holy word. David wrote, how can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. So we mature by accepting and absorbing God's word over time, over years, over our lifetime. And, and the apostles repeatedly you know, remind us, they say, move on from the infancy milk and get into some meat. Yet, you know, the hip and progressive movement in churches nowadays, really for decades has been bottle feeding Christians light doctrine. Superficial doctrine, emotionally driven worship, because that's easy, really. It's easy. It has accelerated our demise, though, in the United States. It has. And, and people aren't challenged to reconsider their theology. Everybody just kind of feels good. It makes our job really easy, because as pastors, we don't have to explain anything if we don't mention anything that's controversial. It makes life easy. 
Besides, you know, if you really want a church to grow fast, you ought to get yourself a praise band. Don't say anything controversial. Make people feel real comfortable in their sin. Don't challenge them to think differently. Certainly don't read from Romans 9. But the reason that our Bibles are thicker than a gospel tract is because God wants us to have ever-increasing understanding of Him because it brings Him glory. Christians don't plateau in their understanding of God. I remember Adrian Rogers said that some of the effects of the Bible is so simple that the youngest child can come and get a sip of water. Yet it's so profound that the greatest theologians, they're never going to touch bottom. It's like an ocean. You can never fathom a complete digestion of Scripture. We're always growing. So today we're going to have a difficult doctrine to consider. And, and we have to because we can't correct, correctly go on to 1 Timothy chapter 2 until we appreciate the bigger picture. Is God sovereign and changing hearts? That's what the song says, so it must be true, right? No, we don't go by songs. We don't go by tradition. We don't determine our doctrine by what we've always been told. Somebody's always told us it works that way. We stretch ourselves intellectually. Because Scripture assures us the mind, not the emotion, the mind is the gateway to our soul. It is. Ever-increasing understanding of God. And, and I'd really like you to understand today what I'm going to be sharing with you. I know there are a lot of visitors here today and a lot in our congregation that perhaps have not uh, fathomed this. But what I'm sharing today in God's sovereignty and salvation, it's not a fringe doctrine. It's not a new idea. It's actually an ancient belief. And Pastor Weiler and my position as pastors on this doctrine are shared by many folks. Sovereignty is a belief that was held by St. Augustine. It's the doctrine of the great Puritans that we know of as Jonathan Edwards and John Owens. It's the position of the Reformers, including Martin Luther, John Calvin, and John Knox. That's why it's sometimes referred to as Reformed Theology, because of the Reformers. There was a biblical doctrine that was recaptured by the Reformers. Because, you know, the Catholic Church had moved away from Scripture. They'd made salvation a work of self. And, and your, your salvation was dependent on your working hand-in-hand hand with God through penance, indulgence, purgatory as necessary. You were working with God. And as the Catholic monk monk known as Johann Tetzel, you've probably heard his name, as he traveled through Germany and he was raising up money to fund the building of St. Peter's Basilica, it is said that he had a slogan, for every coin in the coffer rings, another soul from Purgatory Springs. Let's have your money. You need to work with God. If you don't pair up with him, you won't make it to heaven. Martin Luther, the reformer, he said no. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. And he said the Bible teaches salvation is exclusively an act of God. So the Reformers didn't fabricate uh, new extra-biblical ideas. The Reformation, it wasn't a theological revolution of new stuff. It was a theological reformation and return back to historic Christian doctrine, apostolic doctrine. 
and, and reform doctrine. It's also the theology that was preached by the prince of preachers. It is. Charles Spurgeon, he was reformed. It's the same theology as John MacArthur, Alistair Begg, and Chuck Swindoll. It is the theology that is taught at Dallas Theological Seminary. And it's the same uh, doctrine and belief that is taught at uh, what I consider the finest Southern Baptist seminary in the country, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville. It's also what is taught and preached by their president, the fine Reverend Albert Moeller. So the reason I bring these, these up is so there's, there's no reason to get bent out of shape. If it, some of this sounds new, I understand. It's not talked about a lot. But what, what men believe actually is not really all that important. There's a whole lot of men out there that believe in wacky stuff. So just naming names doesn't mean anything. What's important is, does it accurately reflect what is found in God's Word? Is it apostolic in origin? I believe it is. Let me also say, admittedly, you don't have to embrace Reformed theology to be a born-again Christian. You don't, you don't have to understand it to be a useful part of our church. We're still brothers and sisters in Christ. But Pastor Weiler and I do invite you to honestly and prayerfully consider it for a couple of reasons. One is, it will help you discern our position as we preach from the pulpit. You'll understand what angle we're coming from. And secondly, we believe wholeheartedly that this doctrine magnifies the glory and mercy of God. It magnifies God. And God will not give, He will not dispense, and He will not share His glory with another. So if you disagree with anything I say today, please see Pastor Weiler immediately following the service. (laughs) Well, Reformed theology is rooted in the principle that since the fall, sinful man, in his unsaved, unregenerate condition, is utterly in rebellion against God and spiritually dead to him. We are completely incapable of restoring ourselves to God or even believing in Christ without the Holy Spirit first quickening us. Faith is a gift from God, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that faith is not of ourselves, it is a gift of God, not the result of works, lest anyone would boast. And, and Romans tells us that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. So faith, in regards to salvation, it's not a latent quality that everybody has, and it just needs to be massaged in the right way, under the right conditions, in order to produce salvation. No, it is a gift from God. Faith is a gift, and man needs to have, must have God's grace. Romans 3.9 says, of, of all mankind, quote, all are under sin, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one, there is none who understands, there is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become useless, there is none who does good, there is not even one. So how many fallen sinners are seeking for God out there? None. Kind of puts the end of the seeker-driven church, doesn't it? None. King David writes in Psalm 53, God has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there's anyone who understands, who seeks after God. David's conclusion, every one of them has turned aside, together they have become corrupt, and there is no one who does good, not even one. 
This is what's indicated when you hear the phrase passed around of total depravity. Man is, is corrupt. We're depraved. Left alone to ourself, alone, without God's intervention. We're completely incapable of seeking God. Unable to reach out to God. Utterly powerless to save ourselves. We're spiritually dead. Pastor Weiler gave two excellent messages concerning total depravity, though he didn't title that message that back then. He went through Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 2 in December. And Paul writes, describing of all of us there, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that is Satan, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love which with, with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. Over in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, it says this, When you were dead in your transgressions and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive. God did it. And, and since we are spiritually dead and unable to reach out to God, He sends His Holy Spirit to supernaturally raise us from the dead. Your spiritual rebirth and your regeneration, it's a bona fide miracle. Titus 3, 5, and 6 says this, God saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, and by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. And, and it's a spiritual birth, a rebirth, we have no hand in, we don't cooperate with it. God doesn't need our help. God doesn't want our help. God will not share his glory with another. He's the potter. We are the clay. We're dirt. Just like Adam. Just dirt. That's all we are. We were dead and God made us alive by a quickening of the Holy Spirit. And short of the Holy Spirit's conviction of sin, that's his ministry, and intervention in our lives, even God's word can't save us. 1 Corinthians 2.12 speaks to believers concerning God's word. It says, now we have received the spirit who is from God, meaning believers have received it, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit. Speaking of the word here. Combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. And then what? But a natural man, the unsaved man, unregenerate man, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Void of the Holy Spirit indwelling you, the Holy Spirit's quickening, you can't even understand God's Word. And that's why we have liberal scholars... Highly acclaimed and accredited 
working in Harvard and Yale and all of these places, they read, they study through the Bible, make assessments for decades, and they never come to the saving knowledge of Christ. It's because they haven't been quickened, nor have they been enlightened by God or His Holy Spirit. They're spiritually dead and blind. That's why a person can sit in a church for years too and hear preaching for decades and still never come to know Christ. The truths of Christ written on the pages of Scripture, they're not transferred through human reason. They're imputed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Erwin Lutzer, longtime pastor of Moody Bible Institute, senior pastor there, he used to take first semester homiletics, that is, just preaching students, on a field trip to a nearby seminary. I mentioned this probably a year ago. And he would stand them in front of a gravesite, hand them a Bible, and say, Now get preaching. Because you can no more raise a spiritually dead person than you can a physically dead person, he told them without God's Spirit first removing their spiritual blindness. They're dead. But with the Spirit of God, anything is possible. In Mark 10, 25, Jesus said this, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, right? And the disciples were even more astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, With people, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. It's miraculous. So if you think you can save yourself, just try hopping through the eye of a needle. Not going to be very easy to do. Can't be done. Impossible without God. And the Pharisees, you know, they were proud because they were physical descendants of Abraham. Thought they had it all going. But they weren't spiritual descendants of Abraham. John the Baptist rebuked them saying, Do not say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children of Abraham. That's a fact. God could take cold dead stones and make them into children of a God, children of Abraham, and give them spiritual life if he so desires. Do you believe that? Do you believe he has the power to create, to redeem? Is God that big in our theology? Because God did. He created your human spirit. He took your conscience. He knit them together with flesh, with human DNA, in the womb. God did that. Psalm 139, You formed my inward parts, you wove me in my mother's womb, and in your book were written all the days of my life that were ordained before me, when as yet there wasn't even one of them. So God created your spirit and your soul. He created it. He can do with it whatever He so pleases to do. He's the potter. We're clay. I know, you know, to this point, most of us are probably tracking. You know, we're, we're spiritually dead, can't save ourselves. Yes, we, we learned that uh, at Sunday school. God's Holy Spirit makes us alive. God's Spirit changes hearts, we understand. We know God created us in the womb, gave us life, knew all of our days before we were born. He, yeah, he's Lord of all. 
He's the potter, I'm the clay. We have a personal crisis, though, in Romans 9. A crisis comes at a couple illustrations that the Apostle Paul uses in Romans 9 to amplify this. The first I want to draw your attention to is Pharaoh in verse 15. Romans 9, verse 15. We'll stay in Romans 9 here for the remainder of the day. For God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, labors, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that in my name it might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then, Paul writes, God has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Paul, of course, here is referencing the Exodus. And Exodus provides several illustrations of God's sovereign power over the human will. And and we all know that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. We all know that. And then then he temporarily softened it so they could go. Then it was hardened again. Israel needed to be set free. And after hardening Pharaoh, God told Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you so that my wonders will be multiplied in the land of Egypt. God hardened Pharaoh's heart explicitly to magnify his glory in the land of Egypt. Everyone would be talking about it. He demonstrated his power with the plagues and leading Israel out from Pharaoh, the most powerful man on the planet at that time. And some say, well, I understand that. You know, that's fine. You know, Pharaoh hardened his heart first. You know, he, had, he got what he had coming. Yep. But you know, God would never mess with anybody else's heart. Really. Well, the problem with that proposal is God didn't only mess with Pharaoh's heart back in the Exodus or elsewhere in Scripture. He also messed with the hearts of Pharaoh's entire political cabinet and advisors. Exodus 10.1, The Lord says to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, so that I may perform these signs of mine among them. It's not only Pharaoh and his advisors. When God was first giving these details of the Exodus to Moses, and how all this was going to go down, how they were going to get out of the land, he said to Moses, he said, I will grant this people, meaning Israel, I will grant Israel favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be that when you go, that means go out in the wilderness, you won't go empty-handed, but every Israelite woman shall ask of her Egyptian neighbor and the woman who lives in her house, ask for articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing, and you will put them on your sons and daughters. Thus, you will plunder the Egyptians, God says. God will grant you favor with the Egyptians. Now, friends... That's the way you, reti- you build a retirement nest egg. Get the pagans and ask God, grant me favor. Tell them to hand it over. So God's favor is not just foreknowledge. We can't explain God's favor as him having knowledge. That takes his whole power out of it. He does it. 
So even way back in Israel, there's no question that God has control over people's wills. Including kings, advisors, and the general populace. It's why scripture says in Proverbs 21, The king's heart is like a channel's in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. God is sovereign. And even in politics, the prophet Daniel proclaimed, It's God who changes the time and epics. He removes kings and he establishes kings. It's the same reason that Paul commands Christians to obey our government. Romans 13.1 Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. You believe that? So in November, when you fill out your, your fulfill your God-given responsibility to vote, you don't need to worry about anything except voting for the most godly person on the, on the ballot. That's up to you. Your biblical conscience and everything will affect how you're going to vote. God will establish whom he's going to establish. And, and he'll move the hearts, as he moved the hearts of the Egyptians, his spirit will move the hearts of the American populace. And the person who will get in there will be the person who he ordains to get in there. It doesn't matter who, um, what kind, how much we do, because God's going to have the next president, either for our well-being or for our chastening. God will do it. And our only responsibility as a Christian is to identify and select the most godly of the candidates. Perhaps none of them are going to be Christian. But the most godly, vote for them, submit to God's choice. There you go. You heard it there. So we know for certain God changes hearts. And overrides man's will to achieve his sovereign purposes. So the question is, does God do the same thing concerning salvation? Scripture says he does. Again, please look at Romans 9.15. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Verse 16. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills, or the man who labors, but on God who has mercy. Verse 18, So then God has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Then verse 19, Paul realizing that there's going to be some protest. He says, You will say to me then, Why does God still find fault? For who resists his will? The answer is, God finds fault because we are all at fault. There is none righteous. There is not even one. There's none who seeks for God. There's not even one. And Jeremiah wrote in 17.9, The heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? The prophet couldn't even understand it. And for the, for the unsaved person, the unregenerate person, void of the Holy Spirit, our will is not to honor God and glorify Jesus Christ. Our will is to sin. That's what our will is. So far from possessing this freedom of the will, 
we are in bondage to sin and cannot free ourselves. And, and nowhere in Scripture are we ever told that God promises that He won't violate our will. That He won't influence our will. In fact, Scripture assures us that God absolutely does. And praise God for it. Gerald, a few weeks ago, he said, I'll get drag in this again. He goes, we sure better hope that God violates our will. Because left to ourselves, we're going to hell. That's a fact. Furthermore, in Romans 9, God's mercy and salvation doesn't depend on man's will, but solely on God's sovereign choice. Because God chose Abraham. God chose Isaac over Ishmael. And look with me closely at verse 10. Paul says, And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For through the twi- though the twins were not yet born, and had not done anything good or bad, so that by God's purpose, according to His choice, it would stand, not because of works, but because of God who calls. It was said to Rebekah, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. So although neither Jacob or Esau had been born, neither one had made any kind of moral choice that made them culpable, and, and before Jacob and Esau made any choice, God had made his. It's not only true of Jacob and Esau, it is true of everybody. Because though we're totally depraved, unwilling, unable to choose God, left to ourselves, in Ephesians 1 verse 4, it says, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us as adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will. God's will. Paul assures us God's choice doesn't depend on the man who wills. It's God's will. Jesus said, you did not choose me, I chose you. That ought to drive us right there to worship Jesus Christ. To save us from destruction. He stepped in and intervened. We ought to be praising Him. And and, and I'll add, there's a lot of unfair representation to this idea out there. Um, So... And we'll be glad to talk about it if you have questions, because the questions do come up. Reformed theology doesn't say you can't choose the color of your car. Never says that. It doesn't claim you're a complete robot and don't have to make any choices or don't have any responsibility. What it affirms is that Scripture indicates that our wills are totally depraved. We're bent towards sin, and that it's essential for God's Holy Spirit to intervene and bend us back to Him. For salvation, Jonah says, is of the Lord. This is why Jesus says, No one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by the Father. And then John the Baptist said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. And then 2 Timothy 2.25, Paul's telling Timothy to to gently correct some people who had erred in in doctrine, not in this topic, but but he says to them, With gentleness, Timothy, correct those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, even God's the author of repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, 
having been held captive by Satan to do his will. That's where we are unsaved. We're captive to our sin and captive to do Satan's will. Everyone who's ever been born has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Our, Our wicked behavior proves who are children of the devil. Proves we're by nature children of wrath, Ephesians 2. We deserve God's wrath and we're destined for God's wrath, Romans 1, 2, and 3. We far too minimize our sin because we don't ever compare ourselves to the holiness of God, the glory of God, the perfect righteousness of God. We compare ourselves to our unrighteous neighbors. We don't look at God as holy. We look at ourselves as pretty good because maybe we don't do some things that our neighbor does. But an accurate self-assessment would be that of of Isaiah the prophet. When he said, woe is me, for I am ruined. We're talking Isaiah the prophet here. Because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He says, I'm ruined. God is holy. Man is corrupt. So God is perfectly just in allowing everyone to march on to judgment. God has not faulted in that. Because we've rebelled. But by his powerful and mighty hand, according to his will and according to his choice, by God's grace, he chooses to save some. He chooses to save some. And and we who are called to him are, are referred to in Scripture as God's elect. He's chosen us. And Romans 8, 29 attributes all the credit to that, to God. It says, for those who he foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. whole lot of He's in there. God does it all. And His grace is irresistible. He does it. He justifies. He glorifies. He calls us. And, and concerning you know, these billions of depraved sin, sinners who are out there, as AD, ACDC would say, on a highway to hell, they even sing in glory about it, the rebellious world. They love talking about it. For all those that are speeding on that highway, God sends His Holy Spirit to convict of sin and intervene within the lives of those whom He has chosen and predestined. He intervenes. And we have no idea, as we go out to witness, no idea whatsoever whom the Holy Spirit is convicting, whom the Holy Spirit is not convicting. We don't know. Because Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3.8, and this is referring to the Holy Spirit, He said, the wind blows where it wishes. And you hear the sound of it. I mean, you see evidence of it. But do not know. You've heard it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going So it is everyone who is born of the Spirit. You can't see it. The Spirit is doing it. So salvation is not up to us. We don't choose. We preach Christ to everybody. God changes the hearts. But but God is not morally obligated uh, to save everybody or even anybody. 
as a holy and righteous judge, a holy God, the only thing that he's obligated to do is punish sinners. That's the only thing he is morally obligated to do, is punish sinners. And so sinners receive the penalty they deserve. Why does God pass some over then? Why does God pass over some? Romans 9.19 tells us why. It says, You will say to me then, Why does God still find fault? We've dealt with that. For who will resist His will? On the contrary, Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me this way, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use, the other for dishonorable? The answer is yes. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath who were prepared for destruction? Verse 23 gives the answer. And God did so, to make known the riches of his glory upon the vessels of mercy, which he also prepared beforehand for glory. Why does God endure mankind's sin against him, his rebellion against him, the antagonism. Sometimes for 70, 80, 90 years, God endures people. The rejection when most will be on the wide road that leads to hell. Why does he permit that? That those who uh, execute rebellion against him, why does he patiently endure It says, so that those who are chosen, spared the wrath, they recognize the riches of God's mercy. Just how valuable it is that you have been called to Jesus Christ. Immensely valuable that he would choose any one of us, much less all of us here. Pray everyone's saved. If you don't know you're saved, you need to talk to Pastor Weiler or I before you leave today. Or someone else here. We'll direct you to him. So the question is, as we close, why is this important? How would anyone benefit from this? You you might say, give me a reason this doctrine is worth you considering when you go home and think about it. Why why would this be worth considering? I'll give you five reasons, and we'll go home. First, when you realize salvation is 100% entirely a gift of God by His choice, not yours, not your combined effort of working with Him along the way, Because your choice actually was to sin. But for him to intervene and know it's a a gift of him, you become extremely appreciative of what God has given to you. Second, it spurs the Christian to compassion and mission to a lost world. That is a fact. Your neighbor, your unsaved neighbor who's living across the street from you, he's no worse than you were. And you're not a lot smarter than him because you finally figured it out how to come to Jesus. You were given your salvation by grace and that individual is dead in their sins that they don't know Christ and it, it demonstrates our compassion on them. They're not stupid. They're not the enemy. They're the mission field. Whether they're in government, whether they're in uh, our neighborhoods, whether they're overseas, they're not the enemy. And all we have to understand is that, that they're blind and they're, they're dead because of sin and we pray for their souls to be released from the grip. 
We pray for their souls. We pray for God's grace. Third, a couple of these are doozies. Third, evangelism is fully dependent on God. Fully dependent on God. And we have confidence in prayer. God saves. We know that God can save. And we pray in confidence that He will go ahead of us, convicting those whom He chooses to prepare the soil. He is going ahead of us. So we know when we're sharing, we don't know whether it's going to fall on good soil or or not on good soil. Jesus had parables about that. We just cast it out there knowing that it's fully dependent on God. He is in charge. So we have confidence when we pray. God, use us. Turn hearts to you. Use us to go out and proclaim your majesties. Fourth, we enjoy the peace that a person's decision to receive our message that we, that we take to them. Um, it's not dependent on how eloquent I am. In fact, His power is made great in my weakness. So I am responsible to witness. You go over Scripture and God has chosen to use our message and for our feet to take the good news. And He'll even motivate us to do that. I'm praying that we're motivated to do that. So God does use us in obedience to Him to go take this good news. So I'm responsible to witness, you're responsible to witness, but I'm not responsible to know who God is saving. I'm not responsible to make people believe. I couldn't raise a dead person if I tried. God's Holy Spirit has to raise the dead person. All i got to do is proclaim the message. That's it. In a faithful way, to the best of our abilities, which we always do as a Christian, we're always doing the best of our abilities. Proclaim the message. And, and I'm not motivated to, to try and get them to respond to some superficial, superficial emotional plea. No. Proclaim the message. Finally, God's sovereignty drives us to our knees. Because God has the power to save. I don't understand why Christians would pray to a God for open doors to the gospel and for their family to be saved if they didn't believe that God had the ability to orchestrate human events and override a person's will. Why would you pray to God? What can He do about it? If it's all up to you to go to them and and manipulate them into some superficial emotional response. We pray to God because God is in control and He is sovereign. And and we we wait on Him, we pray for Him to move, and He does know that we're going to be motivated to move. And it will be His good pleasure to respond in prayer. And He's going to know Pastor Weiler is going to be out there sharing. He's going to orchestrate us since we're obedient into the paths of people's lives whom He's calling He's going to direct us. But all the glory goes to Him. And, and if it's God's good pleasure to answer our prayers and we as an obedient servants obey, when we know that He's the one who gets the credit, we're solely going to praise Him. Far too many churches attempt to rob God of His glory by attributing Christian conversions to their technique their eloquence, their emotional music, their fine evangelism programs, instead of glorifying God's Holy Spirit for the conversions. We rob God of His glory. 
And in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says, And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive or enticing words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith, he told Corinthians, would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. It's no wonder God in our day, I feel, has, has become so slow to respond to salvation, to, to see, why we see so few people saved relatively today in America. We see superficial commitments to Christ and people wander off. I think part of the reason we see so few souls truly converted and born again in our day is because we don't credit the Holy Spirit. We take the credit. And, and I personally believe that is partially due to not thinking it through, not thinking through the theology But what we do experience in America today are a whole lot of false conversions. A whole lot of false conversions to emotional pleas. And and Christians are, we will credit our fancy programs, our fancy evangelism, persuasive preaching, well-orchestrated events, instead of pleading with God, the Holy Spirit, to save souls. He is in control. Our job is to do a good job an obedient job of sharing the good news and relying on him to build his church. We must never view our conversions, the conversions as ours, or as a response to our eloquence, nor as notches in our belt. Rather, they are an answer of God to prayer. That's what conversions are. Because he won't share his glory with another. He won't do it. Not going to share credit. And and since we don't know who the chosen are, who the elect are, who God's Spirit is convicting, where the Holy Spirit is blowing because it blows where it wills, because of that, we've been commissioned to take the gospel to everyone. Everybody. And we don't ever overlook anyone. That is the entire point of our passage next week. Let's pray. Lord, Father, you are mighty. You are powerful, Lord God, and your Holy Spirit moves. Lord, your Spirit goes and convicts of sin, Lord, and all you've asked us to do is to carry the message. Lord, sometimes that will come with resistance. Sometimes, Lord, that will come with persecution. Lord, we pray we will be found worthy to suffer for you, to proclaim your majesty, Lord God, to proclaim the holiness of Christ and the corruptness of man. Lord, that you would redeem sinners, that you would call them to yourself, Lord, and you'd use it for your glory. Not because we want to build a big church, not because we, we want to feel good about ourselves or feel that we're appealing. Lord, for your own glory. And Lord, as we pray, as people are saved, we will attribute to you the glory, Lord, for salvation. As you are the Lord of Lord, the King of Kings, you are the Lord of salvation. Lord, and we thank you for for redeeming us. Lord, I would have never chose you, Lord. I was choosing myself. Lord, you intervened. Lord, I pray if there's anyone right here, right now, today, that's been running from you, waiting, Lord, that your Holy Spirit is convicting them now. That, Lord, they'll recognize their sin, see their separation from you, Lord. And that they would realize that Christ had to die on a cross for that sin. And that that your beloved Son, Lord, perished and suffered. 
that, Lord, there's an empty grave that was given and offered. Lord, that those whom you call, Lord, will be redeemed. So we pray you're doing that right here and now. There are hearts that are changed, Lord. We pray that you are changing our heart, O God. Thank you. We praise you for it. In Christ's name, amen.